Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, today I want to pick up on a theme that's been running through a lot of your writing lately, namely how the unorthodox style that President Trump brought to the White House has in some instances proved to be an asset, particularly on foreign policy issues where the Washington consensus in a lot of cases hasn't yielded much over the past few decades. And I'd just like you to take us on sort of a tour of the horizon and explain the history of some of these issues and how President Trump is now deviating from it. So we'll start with the fact that the president has a summit coming up with Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator. That fact in and of itself, pretty sharp departure from the history. Uh, Walk us through how this differs from how past presidents have treated Pyongyang. Well, I mean, we've had three different administrations that have tried to convince them the six-party accords under Bush. I think it was the agreed framework under Clinton, the um, strategic patience doctrine under Obama, and they were all predicated on sober and judicious uh, Washington Beltway, Ivy League-trained diplomats with expertise in that part of the world agreeing to give them various forms of material and financial aid in exchange for either at first not developing nuclear weapons and then once they develop them not testing them in certain ways and not expand and all of that work that magnanimity was seen as weakness to be taken advantage of not to be reciprocated in kind and uh, so Trump comes in and he has a he has liabilities. He doesn't have that temperament and that training, but he has some skill sets that we'd rather know, not know where he acquired them. But he looks at the world as a jungle, and it's a Darwinian survival of the fittest. And unfortunately, in the past, I think our diplomats thought that North Korea or the Iran- Iranians in the Iran-, Iran deal or the red line with Syria or the communist uh, Chinese uh, creation of the Splatley Islands base in the South China Sea. These were all predicated on sort of the Marcus of Queensbury rules of diplomatic convenience and protocol. And so Trump comes in and says, you know, he's short and fat, he's a rocket man, he better not threaten me, and everybody's aghast in Washington, but that doesn't mean they're aghast in Pyongyang or Beijing. They, they understand that. And so the only liability to all of this new diplomacy of sort of tough talk is that someone is going to say, well, you, there's a shelf life on rhetoric. What are you going to do? You dropped a Moab bomb. You bombed the WMD arsenal in Syria once. How long? We need something else to to see if you're credible or not. Otherwise, you know, the Chinese will will let Kim Jong-un continue, or he'll try something stupid. So there is an element of escalation. That's why I think, whether we like it or not, Trump will be forced to have some massive um, cruise missile attack on installations in Syria, just to, to remind the North Koreans and the Iranians that he doesn't believe in the red line theory of Barack Obama. Now, of course, as you suggested there a moment ago, you can't really have the North Korean conversation without also considering China. And you've pointed to the U.S. trade relationship with China as another example of Trump breaking from orthodoxy. Explore that for us, but also answer the question of whether you think the White House can pull off this high wire act of navigating the trade issue at the same time that it's trying to get some measure of Chinese cooperation on North Korea. 
Well, as you know with Trump, he thinks it's all interconnected. So being tough on China with trade allows him to relent in exchange for quid pro quo concessions on North Korea. So it's all part of the art of the deal. Just like with Mexico, he blusters and and threatens, and then he ties in illegal immigration and NAFTA. So if you stop your people coming into our country, maybe we'll not be so tough on NAFTA. So he tries to connect all of these different deals. And uh, the problem, again, though, is he ran as a Jacksonian, don't tread on me, punitive realist. That's what their strategic assessment said, that principled realism. And that meant that his base, the only people that can really destroy him, that 40% of the country that we associate with the red and purple states of the Middle West, they voted because they didn't like what was going on in Syria and Libya and Afghanistan and Iraq. And they will vote for him under hell or high water, but not if he if he turns into a nation builder or an interventionist. On the other hand, the neocon establishment are egging him on and some people of the bipartisan foreign establishment in Washington, but they won't vote for him under any circumstances. Even if he were um, astoundingly successful, they hate him so much they wouldn't. So he's basically, if he goes in and does something dramatic to restore deterrence, then it can't be nation-building. It's sort of the, the dilemma that Reagan faced after Jimmy Carter. He said, I'm going to restore deterrence, but I'm not going to get into a Vietnam and they said, okay. And then he put the Marines in there, and they blew up the base, uh, their barracks in 1983. Then Reagan withdrew them, and they said, ah, you withdrew them. You're just like Carter. And then he said, well, no, because we invaded Grenada, and he bombed Libya, and he shelled the Becca Valley. So what Reagan was trying to do was find a non-interventionist, non-nation-building mechanism of warning superpower enemies that were credible, and we have deterrence. But with Trump, it's the same dilemma, only more so because he campaigned against any idea of doing that. Another discontinuity with past presidencies. How about NATO? A, a lot of foreign policy experts, including a lot of people with whom you're generally in sympathy, were very concerned that Trump's sort of open antagonism towards NATO allies over the fact that many of them weren't paying the agreed-to rates to support the alliance – was going to be destabilizing. How does that square with what we've actually seen? Well, it's the same theme, Troy. It's I'll demand this and I'll threaten that, but there is a plateau or a foundation of which I'll accept. In the case of the NATO countries, is is this is you know I'll bluster. Is this alliance even necessary? The EU's got more money in aggregate than we do. They're not making their goal of two percent expenditures of GDP on military affairs. Maybe we should just end it. And then lo and behold, six, I think it's eight now, members have met that 2% goal. And it's the art of the deal. And everybody's angry at Trump because they think he weakened NATO. And in fact, what weakened NATO was 30 years of, well, the United States is so big and the United States is so powerful. The United States is so influential that we can be taken to the cleaners on our, by our allies who really need NATO more than we do. We can be taken to the cleaners by open borders with the Mexicans. We can be taken on trade by China because that's our role to get kicked a little bit and run the world and the post-war order was so great. And this guy comes along and says, it's not so great in Youngstown, Ohio. You go take a look at Lansing, Michigan. Uh, this country's been hollowed out. <laughs> I just went into Selma today and I think I would nominate a lot of Central California 
cities in that category that have been devastated in terms of manufacturing, small farming, etc. So he's saying, you guys didn't get it, and we, we don't have to take these hits. These countries are getting wealthier at our expense. And that that resonated. And so I think that's sort of what's directing him now, that everything is going to be up for renegotiation. Does he love like the post-war world? Yeah, that's what Mattis and Pompeo and McMaster were a part of in Bolton, but not the expense that it destroys everything between New York and San Francisco, which it has in some ways. It's, it's retarded economic growth. To what degree, Victor, is the dynamic that you're identifying here, the ability to transcend these old log jams present with Russia? President Trump's come in for a lot of criticism for going too easy on Moscow, for going too easy on Putin. But there has been something of at least a, a tonal shift in the past few weeks after the poisoning in England and the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Do you see signs of Trump being able to make some substantive gains on that front, too? I do, but I, I, I feel on this Putin thing that I'm reading Lewis Carroll's Alice Through the Looking Glass, that everything is upside down because we just got done with eight years of an administration that lived in la-la land. I mean, they turned their head from Crimea. They didn't do anything about eastern Ukraine. They had the hot mic promise to be uh, basically for Putin to behave in exchange for canceling missile defense. We canceled missile defense. We made fun of Mitt Romney. We didn't do anything about cyber. Trump comes in and all of a sudden these kittens uh, all of a sudden have been come, are, are anti-Russian tigers and they're faulting Trump from the very beginning that he has to really show his mettle and so far we've attacked, we've fought, actual fought Russian mercenaries in Syria. We have armed the Ukrainians, we've really ratcheted up the sanctions rhetorically, we're at hostility with Putin. And Trump did not invite Vladimir Putin into the Middle East. That was John Kerry. And Trump did not say, thanks, Russians, you got rid of all the WMD. That was Susan Rice, John Kerry, and Barack Obama. So there's a lot of irony here. And one thing we're missing is that traditionally Russia has been a valuable third party, uh, that which we triangulate, triangulated with in terms of, well, we have common interest about radical Islamic fears, uh, we have fears of China, and we could make deals, strategic deals, and the way Kissinger was the master of that. And we've sort of given up that Russian card because of the collusion hysteria. A lot of what you're describing in the show was laid out in a column that you wrote for National Review that was entitled Trump Cuts Old Gordian Knots. And, and that's a reference, of course, to the famous story of Alexander the Great being presented with this supposedly untieable knot and then just slicing through it with his sword. But I'm curious about the conclusion of that piece where you write, knot cutters may not know how to untie knots, but by the same token, those who struggle to untie knots also do not know how to cut them, which suggests to me, Victor, that for all the positive notes you're sounding here about Trump, there's also a, a slight note of caution in there that Trump's unorthodox style may work on a lot of these issues that had previously been stuck on a kind of unhappy status quo, but there are maybe other areas where it may not be effective or it could potentially even be counterproductive. Is that fair or am I overreading? No, that? no, you're fair because take, for example, something to illustrate what you saw in the column and what you saw yourself, and that is um, in this recent tweet about, okay, Russia, here are these missiles coming and they're big and they're smart. That's a threat to Russia. We have one ship in the area, they have 12, and they're, they have almost as many nuclear weapons as we do. 
And so when he broadcasts that we're going to do, that's, that's the crude version of the sober and judicious Ivy League. If I see WMD moving around, then I'm going to, that's a red line, Obama. That kind of talk. So he's got to be very careful that to preserve any notion of credibility that he's got to be very quiet. I'd like, you know, Obama talked loudly and sanctimoniously and he carried a little stick. Trump has been talking loudly and so far he's sort of carried a little, uh, a big stick by hitting these, you know, WMD or dropping things in Afghanistan. But I'd like him to speak softly and carry a club, and that would be much better. Don't tell anybody what he's going to do. Don't mention it. Just say, watch and see. And then when he does decide, don't just take out, you know, one airway, but send 500 missiles and really destroy an entire base. And then maybe he'll get his point across to the North Koreans or the Chinese that, Trump is enigmatic and he's not transparent. But so there are elements that I think he's. We have to watch. I I I've been writing an article where I think he's sort of like the Western hero, the tragic Western hero. You know that Pike Bishop and the William Holden character and Wild Bunch, or Man Who Shot for Liberty Valance, the John Wayne, Tom Donovan character, even Shane, where the these. Towns, people, the the town elders, the sodbusters, the the peasants in Magnificent Seven, they're just not able with traditional protocols to solve this existential problem. So a guy comes in, or a few come in, and we don't know we don't want we don't want to know where they learned to kill. We don't like them. We don't want them around after it's over. But boy, if you need to take out four killers in high noon, or you need to take out. Uh, the Mexican banditos and um, wild bunch, or mag- then you bring these people's skill sets, and then after it's over, you know Shane says to Joey, "In Shane, you can't break the mold. I can't stay here. I tried; it didn't work." The Magnificent Seven say we always lose. The crazy wild bunch go up and smoke, you know. And the point of that is, it's, it goes back to Sophocles that there's certain people that are not civilized, and they want to be civilized, and civilization teases them and romances them and uses them. Curtis LeMay is another example, so is George Patton. But they're not really um, viable characters in the peace and calm of normal times. I think Trump is kind of like that, that we brought him in because we had lost deterrence and we had destroyed the interior of this country in some aspects, and people were angry, and they, they unleashed him. And then they expected him to, you know, talk in the Queen's English or to act as if there were rules and protocols and to be sober. And he's not. But he's doing things that I think these types of tragic heroes do. The final fill-up to that is they don't end up very well. They all either implode or people can't believe they ever asked them to come in once the problem is solved. You know, Curtis LeMay, if you want to burn down 75% of the urban core of Japan and basically destroy a genocidal empire, then he's the guy you need. But after the war, you want to say, did we really do that? No, LeMay convinces to do that. He's that nut in Dr. Strangelove. And Trump is starting to assume those dimensions, I think, that people are starting to see that he's very valuable in confronting these problems, whether it was NAFTA or whether it was NATO contributions or illegal migrations or Chinese expansionism or North Korea, but the manner in which he does it is sort of out of the arena of the Manhattan real estate world, and we don't feel comfortable with it. And when the problems are solved, I think he won't get credit for it and he'll be asked to leave. 
So my final question for you, the answer to which may be embedded in, in what you just said. For the sake of this line of questioning, we'll take the optimistic view and we'll assume that the Trump administration is at least somewhat successful in the areas that we've been talking about thus far on the show. If that happens, does that change the way that we conduct foreign policy going forward because the positive consequences are too hard to ignore? Or do you suspect that future presidents revert to something closer to the pre-Trump Washington consensus and this administration becomes something more like a parenthesis? I think we all know that it's cyclical, and what happens is that when you bring in a guy like Reagan, for example, to shake things up, and he cuts taxes, and he gets 7% economic growth, and that gives us some fuel, and we coast, and then gradually read my lips, and then the Clintons come back, and they kind of slowly undo it until we get another jam. Or if you're in New York City, and it's a complete... Anybody who went there, as I did in the late 1970s, it was a complete circus. And you get a guy like Giuliani, and everybody doesn't like him, and then he he makes it you know pretty calm. And now we have De Blasio that's insidiously and incrementally taking away the Giuliani protocols. And pretty soon we're going to get back to where we were, and then we'll bring in another guy. But I don't think people they're not comfortable with these types of reformers or these outliers or these cowboys and they don't they feel that they were aberrations and they never have enough sophistication or character to say there's something wrong with me not them something wrong with the kennedy school of government there's something wrong with the brookings institution there's something wrong with the council on foreign relations we keep like cookie cutters producing these um, conforming certain styles, they come from particular zip codes, they come from particular economic background, they have particular skill sets, and they're completely unable to understand the mind of a thug like a Putin or Kim Jong-un or President Xi. They don't understand them because they never see them and they never dealt with them. So I don't think that it ever happens that we learn, we just try to go back to the normal complacency that's you know, everybody praises the status quo. We all want our children to get a degree and get a career like these people, and we don't really care what they actually do. But it's kind of hard for us to accept that if you really want to see who's dangerous, it's the people who negotiated the Iran deal or the people like Susan Rice and Hillary Clinton that tried to deal with North Korea when they got ballistic missiles. It's not Donald Trump. I felt the first time I probably not worried about North Korea when at the height of his inflammatory language because I didn't think historically there was as much evidence that that was dangerous than sort of saying that you're going to be have strategic patience with this homicidal maniac. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Classicist Podcast. Remember that amongst the many fine Victor Davis Hanson volumes you should have on your bookshelf, the most recent is The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. And if you enjoy the Classicist, please rate the show on iTunes. We'll be back with another episode soon. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.